All right. Thank you. Thank you all for attending. It is uh, a great treat to be back here another year in a row. This is the best conference to go to, i got to admit. I mean, come on, you stay here, you're right on the beach. Can't get better than this. Doesn't get better. Um, I'm going to talk about great and crazy things we do in oncology, and I'm going to show you some examples where the truth is hiding in plain sight to some studies. Uh, part of it will be educational. That part's at the end. Don't worry about that. That's at the end. We're not going to get to that for a while. Uh, in terms of my background, I'm a hemonc doctor. I'm there in clinic every week at San Francisco General Hospital. I take care of everything pretty much from Von Willebrands to colon cancer, lung cancer, you name it. I'm, I'm seeing it and I attend on service with the fellows and I'm a professor in epidemiology department. All right, well thanks for having me back. This is a picture from last year of myself and Yoshi Saito, who is my medical school classmate. Yoshi, uh, he heard the talk last year and he got, he was like, that's enough of this guy. Um, and also, who's this joker wearing a jacket? You know, I didn't get the memo last year. Now I know. No jackets. Jacket not allowed. You're not supposed to have a jacket. Thank you. I learned the lesson. All right, I wanted to start. I always want to start by just acknowledging that we do some great things in oncology. I think we, this talk is going to be very critical of a lot of things we do, but I want to open by saying we do some really wonderful things. I think the most important thing we do, everybody in this room, is we provide comfort to people in times of crisis. And I think you can't underestimate how important it is just to be an ear to somebody who's going through a cancer diagnosis just to provide a sounding board, um, and then provide guidance to tell them what they might expect, what's coming down the road. Uh, it's one of the most important jobs in oncology. I always tell the staff that they're doing the most important thing, which is caring for the patient. And I also want to remind myself, we do give good drugs. We've got some drugs that are truly transformational, that have improved outcomes dramatically. We took chronic myeloid leukemia, a disease where the median survival is three years. Now you live almost normal life expectancy. And that is really a remarkable story. So we have great drugs, provide guidance, provide comfort for people, some of the best things we do in oncology. But one day I was in clinic. One day I was in clinic in San Francisco General Hospital. And shown here is a picture of me in clinic. Actually, this was a visiting student who wants to go to medical school, who's also an artist, and drew a artist rendition of myself in clinic. I, of course, don't actually wear a white coat or I don't carry a stethoscope, as I like to say. My only physical examination is a PET CT, so uh, this is not exactly, <laughs> not exactly an accurate portrait. Um, but, you know, that's what the, that was the in clinic. And the patient was there in clinic, and the patient asked me a tough question. Should I drink coffee to prevent colorectal cancer? I said, oh boy, coffee, colorectal cancer. I started to say, what did they teach me about this in medical school? I had forgotten. Hmm, did I learn anything about this? So I did what any great doctor does, which is I turned it into a question I knew the answer to. I told her, you know, I always advise my patients that nearly anything in moderation is fine. I wouldn't take up drinking coffee to prevent colon cancer, no. But if you enjoy doing it, as I enjoy doing it, then I wouldn't stop, you know? So have at it, I said. And then the patient fired back with a doozy. Well, didn't you read the new study, doctor? <laughs> The new study, huh? The new study? I thought back to that picture. That new study, huh? <laughs> Did I read it? <laughs> Had I read that new study? Okay. The study was this one. Coffee linked to longer survival in patients with colorectal cancer. Study says, USA Today. This is the talk of the town. 
people doing this kind of hard-hitting research, coffee is improving outcomes, colon cancer. It's not just, it's not just metastatic disease. I'm gonna show you that paper, but a year before the Harvard researchers who did this work, they did it in the adjuvant setting. It works, it links coffee to reduced colon cancer recurrence. If you have colon cancer, get the surgery, you drink coffee, less likely for that cancer to come back. And then if it does come back, you drink more coffee, you're gonna live longer. <laughs> it's amazing. It's amazing. And here was the press release from the Farber. I mean, this is the real deal. This is the best, the best place. Daily coffee consumption is associated with improved survival in patients with metastatic colorectal cancer. All right. And it said the benefit pertains to caffeinated and decaffeinated coffee. I said, get out of here, that's not true. There's no benefit that pertains to decaffeinated coffee. We all know that. It's gotta be false, it's gotta be wrong, okay? When I see that, I know it's wrong. All right, so let's dig into this, okay? Oh, I also saw this quote by the PI. Further research is needed to determine if there's a causal connection between coffee consumption and improved outcomes. Okay, of course, always further research needed, but precisely which compounds within coffee are responsible for this benefit? Which ones? You have to figure it out. It's not the caffeine. They figure that part out. So here was the paper. Association of coffee intake with survival in patients with advanced or metastatic cancer. It appeared in JAM Oncology, premier journal. You know, it's one of the best journals we got. And uh, it's, a, it's a who's who of important figures in GI oncology. I mean, these are the biggest names in the field. I mean, it's an important paper. And what did they do? They took 1,100 people who had previously untreated locally advanced or metastatic colon cancer who were enrolled in a cooperative group study, 80405, and they had given them surveys for all the time during the study. And they knew how many people drank one cup, two cups, three cups, and just like me, four plus cups of coffee a day. <laughs> four cups just before I came up here, too. All right, here's what they found. Progression-free survival, there you go. If you're a never drinker, less than one, two to three, four, right there. And I look at these curves to myself, and I'm an old-fashioned doctor, I say it didn't look like it doing that much. But there's a two-month PFS benefit right there. Two-month PFS, I'm an old-fashioned doctor, I say that doesn't sound so much to me, but log rank P of 0.04, come on, significant. You're in jam oncology now, looking good. You're happy to get that result. 0.051, get out of here. This paper's in the trash bin. <laughs> Overall survival's a little bit different story. That two-month PFS is looking a little bit better. If you're drinking the four-plus cups, as you see here, something happened. You had a brief period of time of immortality, and then the curve split. <laughs> the curve split, and the four-plus cup group has an eight-month overall survival benefit from coffee. That is quite good. And I thought to myself, eight months, it's pretty good. How does that compare against some of the drugs we're giving? This is Lonserf, randomized controlled trial. This is a two-month difference. Two months of OS benefit. But coffee is eight months. Pretty good. Wow, it's like four Lonserfs. Even decaffeinated coffee is better than Lonserf. It's crazy. This is Bevacizumab. We use this often in colorectal cancer. I don't know why, but we do. And here you see, there's a three-month overall survival benefit from Bevacizumab. Gosh, this coffee is even better than our drugs. So good. Eight-month benefit. And in case you think I'm cherry-picking median survival, if you actually... Oh, so the answer is coffee is way better than actual drugs. I find that surprising. And in case you think I'm cherry-picking... Oh, my 
God, my slide screwed up. Uh, I want to show you here the hazard ratio. The hazard ratio, which was supposed to be circled in this slide, uh, is actually better for coffee than it is in the randomized control trials of most GI oncology agents. For four cups, you got a hazard ratio of 0.64. I don't know what a hazard ratio is, but it's good. It's a good loader. It's a loader. So it's way better. And then there's another clue in this paper that struck me as odd, which is that coffee only works if your BMI is low, less than 25. And it doesn't work if your BMI is higher. Statistically significant interaction by BMI. All right, I'm teasing this study, but I actually don't believe it at all. I mean, I love coffee, but I don't think it's going to improve outcomes of colon cancer. And I actually think the answer to why this study is flawed is right on this figure. And the reason it's flawed is it only works in thin people. So why is that a problem? Unfortunately, in cancer, uh, well, one, it smells spurious to me, like, you know, it only works in some groups. But unfortunately, in cancer, there's two reasons why somebody with advanced or metastatic colon cancer will be thin. One reason is the person started out with a higher BMI, but then they had cancer-induced cachexia, and now they're thin. Another reason they might be thin is that that person was always thin. And who is the person who's going to drink a lot of coffee? Is it the person who has cancer-induced cachexia, losing their appetite and thrill of coffee drinking? Or is it the person who was always thin? So I think coffee is actually a surrogate in this observational study for people who had better underlying health. And it's not the coffee that's making you live longer. It's the type of person who, despite having metastatic colon cancer, can continue to drink four cups a day. And that's not going to be the cachectic cancer patient. That's the entire results of this study, which I think is not that helpful. Every substance that improves outcomes in colon cancer in the metastatic and adjuvant setting, this is a paper we did in uh, JAMA Network Open. All these drugs are the ones that are FDA approved, NCCN recommended, metastatic disease and adjuvant disease. There's only a few that make it into both buckets. They all have something in common, which is if you give it to somebody with metastatic cancer, the tumors will shrink. But if you give coffee to somebody with metastatic cancer, the tumors don't shrink. So it doesn't have drug activity. And so I don't think it actually does that much. So my overall take on this paper, the effect size is too large. It's not plausible. I mean, it can't be four times lawn surf, not that I think highly of lawn surf. The small PFS, two-month PFS, became an eight-month overall survival. That's an inconsistent effect. Actually makes me think that it's really selecting for healthy people. It's a larger benefit than actual anti-cancer drugs. A few random events drive the overall survival curve. Among thin, thin people, cachectic people may lose the desire to drink coffee. And there's no substance that has 0% activity, which means it don't shrink tumors, that has ever worked in the metastatic and adjuvant setting. So it's not biologically plausible. So I wouldn't have published this paper in JAM Oncology. I would have put it in the shredder, where I think it deserves to go. So how did I feel when I read this paper and I finally got back to that patient? I didn't feel like this. I felt like this. <laughs> and I have stock photos of myself in all emotional states. <laughs> I felt like this because I actually think it makes our jobs harder as oncologists that we have a steady stream of just low credibility science that keeps coming out. Low credibility clinical studies, I'm going to show you, low credibility studies about nutritional epidemiology. We have to talk to patients every day. They got so many questions. They're reading the newspaper. One day it's coffee. The next day it's some berry. The next day it's green tea. I don't have time to read all these papers and they have no credibility. They have so many flaws, and so it makes it harder for those of us who are actually in clinic to do this work. 
And so, of course, I turned to Twitter, and I was critical of this paper. And I didn't think nothing of it. You know, I thought this is my usual stock and trade. I'm critical of it. I didn't think it was too credible. And then I saw that the, the PI of the study, the, or the first author of the study, was mad at me. You know, they got real mad. They saw my criticism. They didn't like it. It says, it's an epidemiology paper. We carefully characterize findings as associations, not causes. We wrote paragraphs of limitations of this type of study. Dr. Prasad thinks he's the first to know these things. And two, my co-authors and I in the pocket of who? Big coffee, he asks. And I didn't know he was watching. I felt bad. I felt guilty. I don't want to hurt his feelings. I mean, you know, I know he worked hard on it. I'm sorry. You know, it's not personal. I wasn't criticizing this study because it's personal. But I do think doing low credibility research makes it harder to be a doctor, to teach the public about science, and to build trust in science. Because a public that keeps seeing flip-flopping stories about coffee and dark chocolate and green tea comes not to trust the scientists. And I think that's a deep loss. And so, you know, no offense to this person who worked hard on this paper, but I wouldn't have done it. I don't think I learned a lot. So the great thing we do, I think, in oncology is the great thing we do is research. And then the crazy thing we do, I think, too often, is many people in the big places, they put their careers in front of the truth. They're more interested in the next paper, more interested in being on that stage at uh, Chicago in June, than they are in what's the reality? What's the reality of what works? All right, so now the fun part's over. The rest of the talk is going to be very, very dull. We're going to get into the education portion of the talk. That was the entertainment part. That's over. Education begins now. All right, and I apologize because I last year, all right, last year I gave a different talk, a talk I usually give, but I can give the same talk twice. This is a different talk. So I'm going to delve into some of the more intricacies of cancer clinical trials. I know many people here are in the industry. I think you might actually find this interesting too. Oh boy, it just got dull, didn't it? <laughs> How many times have you seen something like this? This is a Kaplan-Meier plot. It is a plot we see all the time. It's got, you know, here apparently low expression of some DEUP. Well, I don't even know what that means. High expression of that. Looks like if you have high expression, you do better than if you have low expression. There are these numbers at the bottom. That's numbers at risk. What's it telling you? Basically, a Kaplan-Meier plot is a plot of the time until something happens. Typically, something bad happens. By definition, when you start out, it couldn't have had the bad thing happen. That's why it always starts at the top. And then as the bad things happen, the curve drops. And then there are all these little tick marks along the way, these little tick marks. What does that mean? So every time the curve dips, it means an event occurred. The numbers at the bottom show you the number of people still at risk in the next time interval. So the number at bottom is basically the number of people who started minus the number of people who had the bad thing happen minus people who may have just enrolled recently or been lost to follow-up or for some reason didn't show up. And that's the number at the bottom. And why are the steps at the end of the curve so big, but the steps in the beginning, you can hardly see it so smooth? And the answer is there's just fewer people at risk. So for instance, right here, this red curve, the step is that big, and it says number at risk four. I actually bet when this event occurred, there were five people at risk. One of those five people died and four of those five people are alive, and so the curve drops 20% of the distance from here to the baseline right in that one instance. Because basically what the plot is doing is it's taking the information we have from people we measure and extrapolating that to everybody as if they would have had the same outcomes had we followed them long enough into the future. So for that reason, okay, wait, for that reason, we call this a 
a plot, and it's an estimate. It's not actually what happens to everybody, because we don't know what happens to everyone in the future. The second thing is it takes the maximum amount of information we can take from everybody. I told you this is going to be education now. The vertical ticks mean a patient is censored. means we don't know what happened to them beyond that time point. And the estimate of survival beyond that time point is the average of people in whom we do know the survival. So there's an assumption here, which is the people you're measuring survival in are no healthier, wealthier, or wise than the people you don't know what happened to. That the people you followed for 100 months are just the same as the people who only enrolled two months ago. That's an assumption of the method. The people who are lost to follow up are no different than those who did follow up. That's the assumption of uninformative censoring. It's a critical assumption in this plot. So it's a maximum information harvest. We take everyone's info, we use as much of it as possible. And the key assumption is that people we don't know what happened to are no healthier, wealthier, wise. I warned you, this is education. This is getting quite dull now. All right, when you see overall survival, like in this prior plot, you see the curve is smooth, and then it has the big steps. But when you look at something like progression-free survival, we talk all the time about oncology, progression-free survival, progression-free survival, it always looks like this. The shape has this kind of stair-step pattern to it. Why does it have the stair-step pattern to progression-free survival, but overall survival is smooth? Why does this curve look like nothing's happening for the first six weeks, and then on six week, whoa, something bad happens to everybody, and then 12 weeks and 18 weeks, every six weeks, something bad is happening. Any guesses why? That's when they get the scans, that's right. That's when they get the scans. So. It's a binned endpoint because of when they get the scans. If you change when they get the scans, you can actually change the curve quite a bit. You can change the hazard ratio. That's why actually they talked about Sotorisib at the ODAC last week. They talked about that. But it's a binned endpoint. All right. Whenever you run a randomized controlled trial, you typically enroll people for a few years. From 2015, 2016, 2017, you're enrolling people. How does it work? First month, you open the study, you enroll about 15, 17 people. We're just getting, our, we're getting things in order. Then you start enrolling 30 people a month, 30 people a month, 30 people a month. Eventually, you get to 500 people. You've got all the people the statistician says you need. And now you enter the follow-up period of the study. Okay? As you're doing the follow-up, somebody comes to you and says, we're ready for the interim analysis right here. And as you can see, the person who enrolled in 2015 can contribute one year, two years, and a little bit more to the survival curve. But the person who enrolled in late 2017, they might be able only to contribute a few months to the survival curve. But one assumption of the Kaplan-Meier plot is that the people who enrolled right here, they're just the same as the people who enrolled in 2015. There's nothing different about them. Nothing really changed. And they're being balanced between the two arms. So it's reasonable to assume that this person in 2024 will have, you know, or this person in 2019 will have the same outcomes as the 2015 person in 2017. That's really the basis of the plot. That's why they made it. So what are the reasons why somebody is censored? What are the reasons why those tick marks exist? What are the reasons why we don't know what happens to someone? And the answer is for overall survival, they enrolled recently. They just enrolled a month ago. So I don't know what happens to you a year from now. You just enrolled a month ago. The second reason is you're lost to follow-up. You enrolled on the study, but you disappeared. Turns out in modern clinical trials, you all in the industry are very good at keeping track of people. Nobody disappears from OS plots for loss to follow up. You know where they are. You know if they're alive or dead. And the same is true for progression-free survival plot. Except there's one more thing. There's something that can get you censored on a progression-free survival plot that is not the case for overall survival. Any guesses what that is? What is something that we don't know what happened to you Huh? 
You didn't sign. You didn't get the scan. You didn't get the scan. That's the key point. What do you need for PFS? You don't need for OS? You didn't get the scan. So who doesn't get scans? All right, so a little more background. Then I'm going to put this all, tie this all together. All right, so what is progression-free survival? Somebody comes in. At a baseline, we measure their tumor. It has a diameter, cross-sectional area. It has a volume. I think it's four-third pi r cubed, something like some complicated like that. I forgot all that math. We follow them from this time until one of a few things happen, whichever comes first. First is person could pass away. That's a survival part of the endpoint. Second thing is there could be new lesions on the scan. The lungs didn't have any lesions. Now they're innumerable pulmonary nodules. That's a progression event. The tumor could get bigger, but it has to get 120% bigger. 119% call that stable disease. 121% we call that progression. As if somebody walks around saying, I feel good, I'm 118, I'm 119, feeling good. 121, oh, I feel terrible. No, of course. It's arbitrary, totally arbitrary. The other thing that could happen is the tumor shrinks. If it shrinks 30% or more, we call that a response. And again, nothing magical about that number. And if it grows, I told you last year where the number came from, I think, in this talk. And then if it grows 20%, it's from the smallest it ever was. So progression-free survival is a time until one of these four things happen. Okay. So patient has to get the scan. All right. So a few years ago, there was this paper in New England Journal. It was Everlimus in combination with Eximestane. It's the Bolero trial. And when I read this paper, I thought to myself, gosh, I hate Everlimus. Every time I give patients Everlimus, they come and say, my hands and feet are aching. I feel terrible, doctor. I hate Everlimus. So I hate it too. You know? Gosh. And that's like, well, are you testing breast cancer? What are you thinking? And then the FDA approved Everlimus for breast cancer. And I was like, oh, well, what are they so excited about? And they're excited about this. This is the progression-free survival curve. Local assessment, central assessment. This is what they're excited about. You know, it delayed PFS a few months. You know, the, the hazard ratio, 0.43, that's pretty good. P-value's got all these zeros in it. You know, it looks good. PFS benefit, what's not the like here? Everlimus plus eximestane, placebo eximestane. I looked at this curve and I was like, okay, I don't know. I guess it's four months PFS, I guess it's something. Jose Baselga, he told me how great it was back then, you know, the late great Baselga. Overall survival came out a few years ago. And overall survival from this product didn't look so good. Actually, the p-value is not significant. The curves are kind of crossing, overlapping. I mean, there's just no overall, and now we have updated analysis. There's no survival benefit from this drug. So I started thinking to myself, well, why does this happen so often in oncology? Drugs have a PFS benefit, but they don't have the OS benefit. And we always come along in oncology, and the drug reps come by, and they say, this is the reason, doctor. They say, you take the new drug, and you got that big PFS benefit off the, off the start. But then all those pesky old drugs confound the PFS benefit. And at the end of the day, you have the same overall survival. That's the story. And then I always think to myself that if I was running a marathon, New York City Marathon, and somebody said, I have a $12,000 Gatorade I'm going to have you drink right before we start. And what happens is your first seven miles, you're going to run faster but then the rest of the miles are going to be really slow and you finish at the same time, I'm going to say I'm not going to pay $12,000 for that, for that Gatorade. And so to me, I find this explanation lacking. But I don't think this is the only explanation for what might be going on in this Bolero study. Is that the only reason why there's a PFS benefit but no OS benefit? So I went back to this thing and I noticed something funny. These numbers at risk under the line. Gosh, it's 485, now it's 398. All right, that's how many people are still at risk. I was like, well, 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 should it have been 398 or a different number? 
So I drew my, I got a ruler out and I drew the arrow and I said, well, you know what? In the first time interval, looks like about 12% of people in Everlimus arm have the event. It goes from 100 to about 88, you know? 12% of people. Then I got a calculator out. I said 485 minus 12%, that's 59 people. And 59 people minus 485, that's 426. But you're telling me it's 398. You're missing a few people. You're missing 28 people. They disappeared in that first time interval. They're censored. That's 7% of the population. They're vanished. Poof. Hiding in plain sight. Where'd they go? Then I said to myself, okay, well, there's a simple explanation. They all enrolled recently. They enrolled in like the last few weeks. And that's why we don't know what happened in week six. They enrolled just two weeks ago, you know? So let me check the control arm. That's 177. So they should also have 7% of people lost to follow up because it's a randomized study. They got a few people randomized there in the last month or so. And then I drew the line and I did the math, the 60 people. I expected to see 179 and it's 177. That's less than 1%. Huh, very different. There are a lot more people missing on that Everlimus arm in the first six weeks than on the control arm of placebo in the first six weeks. Does anyone know why we are missing 6% of people who didn't show up to get the scan on the Everlimus arm. Who knows why? Toxicity, somebody said toxicity. Toxicity. In one arm, you're losing 6% of people because they're getting side effects from this drug that are unpleasant and they don't want to come back to your clinical trial. <laughs> and the assumption of the plot is that the people in whom you measure the outcome are the same as the people you don't measure the outcome in. But do you think that 6% of people that takes Everlimus and feels sick, is that the same person as the person who shows up? Let me give you another, let me give you an way to think about it. On the trial, there's two women. One's a 42-year-old woman who's running marathons who happens to have, who happens to have metastatic breast cancer or receptor positive. The other is a 72-year-old woman who has high blood pressure, chronic kidney disease, and she starts taking Everlimus. Which one of those two women is more likely to stop coming? The older woman. And so what you have here is a problem. You have, the patient has to get scanned, okay, uh, toxicity. Toxicity is knocking people out. And the assumption of uninformative censoring is not met. In fact, the person who doesn't show up is probably older and frailer and more vulnerable than the person who does show up and their PFS is going to be lower if you were to have measured it, which you didn't because you knocked them out of the study. And so then I had this guy, Usama Bilal, who worked at Johns Hopkins. I said, Usama, do me a favor, do some, you're, you know how to use these computers. And I was like, can you go get that study and make the curves of the original study? And he did, that's the blue line is the control arm, the red line is the Everlimus arm. And I said, can you like digitalize it and figure out how many people are censored at each time point? And he said, yeah, sure, computers can do everything. I said, really? I said, I have a post-it note on my computer with all my passwords on it. So that's the level we're operating at. That's the level we're operating at, okay? He does all this. And then I said, assume that the person who stopped coming did really, really well, and assume that the person who stopped coming did really, really poorly, and he made these like three red curves to show you the range of possible outcomes, and then he made three blue curves to show you the range of outcomes there, and the point here is that the curves cross. That actually with very little different, like if you make different assumptions about the people who didn't show up to the scan, you can turn Everlimus eczemestane into an FDA-approved beneficial drug to a drug that actually does nothing at all. So I ask you, what's more plausible, 
that it improved PFS and there's no OS benefit because you ran all those other miles a little bit slower, blah, blah, blah. Or is it just that the drug doesn't work? It doesn't have a benefit. And the only reason you found a benefit was you were knocking people out, not at random, on your treatment arm, but not on your control arm. And that's what I think actually happened with this study. All right, so I think this is a bad drug. I wouldn't have approved it. Pull it from the market if I could. All right, so the next part. This is Tito Fojo. Some of you may know him. He's a professor at Columbia University. He was my program director. He's one of the best oncologists I've ever worked with. He was a great guy. And one day I used to come into his office. He had a big office, and he was the person who turned me on to this idea of censoring and this looking at the graph and the ruler. I came into his office. There were pages from journals everywhere, and he had the ruler out. He was drawing all these lines. At first I thought he was a crazy person, but then I realized he was onto something. <laughs> first I thought he totally lost his mind. Tito, what are you doing with the ruler? All right, so Tito noticed this problem, and he said, Instead of using that ruler and making all these silly lines, you know, the companies know how many people are censored at every time point. Why don't we just make them report it? And he said, you know who's going make to make them report it? David Collingridge from Lancet Oncology. He goes to David Collingridge and he says, David, just make them put below the axis how many people are censored at every time point. I don't need to get the ruler out. We don't have to spend all these games. We don't have to make these guesses. They can just tell us the censoring at every time point. David Congridge said, why not? Let's do it in all the Lancet journals. And they did it. And lo and behold, in any Lancet journal, it will tell you the number censored at every single time point. And you don't need to get that ruler out. And you can just get the number right off the top. And this was the policy for three years before, all right, there it is, before Kate Rosen walked in my office. Lancet had changed three years ago. I don't think anyone even noticed. Kate Rosen's a medical student. She walked in my office and she said, I'd like a research project. I said, you know what? A few years ago, Tito made David Collingridge start to report these numbers. Why don't you go back to every Lancet article and get those numbers and calculate and we can calculate the censoring thing across all the studies. And she said, okay, why not? And that was our paper. Censored patients in Kaplan-Meier plots of cancer drugs and empirical analysis of data sharing. A title so boring, even my own mother wouldn't read this paper. <laughs> even she wasn't proud of this. She said, that's boring. You gotta do something more exciting for me to read. That's what she said about my book too. Too boring. All right, so we published the paper. All right, and here's what Kate Rosen did. This is every trial in the Lancet, and it tells a really interesting story. Bear with me. It shows the sample size of the study on the vertical axis, and in this direction, are studies where there's more censoring in the first time interval on the experimental arm. So this is kind of like a Bolero, but it's not Bolero because it wasn't published in the Lancet journals in those years. This is like a Bolero. There's more people quitting the experimental arm, probably because of toxicity. There's also a study here where way more people are quitting the control arm. They're just really quitting the control arm very quickly, very suspicious study. And then there's a lot of studies in the middle, but the weighted average is very small but it shows that more people quit the control arm in the first time interval on randomized trials in cancer medicine than the intervention arm. Does anyone know why? Slightly more people quit the control arm than the intervention arm in randomized trials of cancer drugs. Slightly more people say, eh, no thanks. Why? Somebody's saying it, you're getting at it, say it. Yes, they're disappointed. They're disappointed because they wanted to be the active arm. And in this study, they're really disappointed. And it's so disappointed and so many are quitting that when this study came to the FDA, the FDA said it's no longer a randomized trial. In one arm, you got 15% of people quitting. That's not a balanced study anymore. It's terrible. 
Why are you giving that? What's going on? But yes, yeah, slightly more. The people are disappointed. All right. So then I was reading the journals one day. I'm going to finish in 10 minutes. This is, this is just getting to the, the teaching, the teaching mode, the critical teaching moment. I opened the journal and I read about Lutetium 177 PSMA 617. I said, oh my God, what's that? I said, wow, some radioactive isotope they're giving people with prostate cancer. Super cool. And this is a paper by Ali Sartor, who's a, these are legends. It's called a vision study. They had a vision for the future. And everyone was talk about, talking about it. It was a talk of the town. And uh, basically, one thing I asked was, is this a blinded study? And they said, you know, it can't be blinded because actually with your modern day iPhone or cell phone, you can hold it to your body and the camera can be a Geiger counter and tell you you're actually emitting radioactivity. So this is not a blinded study. This is an open label study. And they're giving you some super cool radioactive isotope that everybody wants versus standard care. To be in the study, you had to have one positive PSMA lesion, no PSMA negative lesions, blah, 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 blah. You don't even know, what, you don't even know that. You just had to be somebody with prostate cancer, PSMA lesions. They got randomizing people to the fancy lutetium PSMA or the standard of care. And I always say, when you say standard of care, what do you mean? What is the standard of care in this study? Well, we'll come to that. Okay, so first here's the result. Progression-free survival. Huge benefit. This is huge. I mean, look at that. Boom. And even overall survival. A skeptic like me has to be satisfied. It improves survival, right? Huge benefits to lutetium PSMA. This is a winner. And maybe here you are going to be sending people off the island or giving it here. I don't know what, where your status of lutetium PSMA. We have some, we have a, we have a, it's booming at UCSF. What was the problem with this study? There's something about it that got in my, got under my skin, like a pebble in my shoe. It kept bothering me. And the problem was standard of care. Standard of care therapies could not include cytotoxic chemotherapy, radioisotopes, immunotherapy, or drugs that were investigation where the trial was designed. I was like, but those are kind of the drugs I'd want to give. <laughs> Weird. Permitted treatments in the control arm included, but were not restricted to, abiraterone and enzalutamide. Those are two good drugs. Bisphosphonates, radiation therapy, denosumab, or glucocorticoid at any dose. I thought to myself, it's been a long time since I gave single-agent prednisone for prostate cancer, and I hope never to do that again. But Abby and Enza are good drugs. Abby and Enza are very good drugs, unless you've gotten one or the other before. If you've gotten one or the other before, they don't work for a crap. And if you've gotten both, then you certainly should never get those again. That would be a terrible decision. But when you look at table one, it turned out that most people had gotten one of them before, a bunch of people have gotten two of them before, and a bunch of people have gotten more than two of them before. And now we're gonna give it to them for another time, which is absolutely crazy. Just totally unethical control arm. Just really negligent, negligent control arm. Meanwhile, what they hadn't gotten is cabazitaxel. Only 40% got cabazitaxel. The reason that caught my eye was a, a year before they had published that cabazitaxel beats the crap out of Abienenza, if you've gotten Abienenza before, in the CARD study. So this study took people who hadn't gotten cabazitaxel and didn't let them get cabazitaxel on the control arm, but in the lutetium arm, you get the fancy new drug. So we published on this in the Lancet. It's called Choice of Control Group and Randomized Trials. Are we testing trivialities? I published a paper on this in JAMA Oncology. It's called Analysis of Control Arm Quality and Randomized Trials, where the trial has a control arm that's beneath the standard of care. If my father were assigned to the control arm, I would not be happy. I wouldn't allow it. So if I wouldn't allow for my own father, why would I allow for my patient? 
in general, urinary, they're a big offender in this problem. They are, about one-third of their FDA-approved studies have bad control arms, in my opinion. And these are bad control arms at the time they launched the study, not even mid-study. Okay, so then it turns out the patients in this study knew something was fishy. This is what it says in the paper. Quote, after the trial started, a high incidence of withdrawal from the trial was noted in the control group at certain sites and attributed to patient disappointment. After discussion with regulatory authorities, we implemented enhanced trial site education measures, which sounds like they should be doing that at Guantanamo Bay, not in a clinical <laughs> trial. That doesn't sound good to me. If you have to have an enhanced education because you got assigned the control arm, you might want to reconsider your control arm, in my, in my opinion. Enhanced trial site education. I found that problem. And then it turned out patients were very unhappy if they got the control arm. The percent of patients in the control group who discontinued the trial without receiving the random assigned treatment was 56% before the implementation of brainwash, I mean enhanced trial site <laughs> education, and 16% after implementing the brain, uh, advanced trial site education. Um, wow, that is super high. Patients knew they were getting a terrible control arm. Now back to this paper. Now let me ask you something. The person who enrolled in the study and got assigned to the control arm that was no good and negligent and unethical, in my opinion, that's a fact, actually. I would just say that's a fact. It's unethical. It should have been blocked by IRB. That person who decides to quit is one type of person. The person who decides to stay, who's that person? Think about two people. There's one person who is financially well-connected. They have friends and family in medicine. They can go to Sloan Kettering or Dana-Farber. They can go to any other university they want. And they get assigned to the control arm. They don't get lutetium PSMA. Are they going to say, I quit? Think of the other person. This person is in uh, 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 Eastern Europe. They have no health insurance. They have no access to medical care. If they get the control arm and they say no, they get nothing. They go on hospice. Who's the person going to quit that study? It's the rich person, I think. So it is informative censoring going on in this study, because the people quitting the study are the people with access to other options, not the average person in the study. So you're comparing outcomes from everybody, rich and poor, to just the privileged. Or sorry, just the poor, because the privileged people have left the study. Okay, horrific. So this was the figure I showed you where we looked at all those Lancet studies, and I asked myself, let's take the Visions trial and let's plot it on this figure. Of course, it wasn't in the Lancet. It was in New England Journal, so I have to plot it. And I said, well, the first thing I have to do is change the axis because it's so bad, it's off the charts bad. And it's actually so bad, it's not even a randomized study. Because the whole point of randomization is to get two groups of people that have the same outcome distribution in the absence of therapeutic effect. But if you have so much dropout because of a negligent, unethical control arm, it's not randomized. And actually, the FDA previously blocked this drug, which is quizartinib and AML, but they didn't block vision. That was a mistake they made. They should have blocked it. But of course, the trialists had a, re a reason why they did this. The rationale for the exclusion of certain treatments was that the safety profile had not been established in combination with the PSMA. I don't think that's a good reason because you don't have to go in addition to. You can go in lieu of, which they did in the Michael Hoffman study. And then the other thing they say is that patients who had received one taxane were ineligible for this trial if they were deemed at baseline to not be candidates for receiving a second taxane. In other words, we only took people who we couldn't give cabazitaxel to. They were too sick. And I would believe that if, at the end of this study, none of the people in this control arm got cabazitaxel because they were too sick to get it at the beginning. But of course, the answer is that 20% of them got cabazitaxel at the end. So I think it would have been a lot higher if you had given to the beginning. I don't think they're too sick to get cabazitaxel. I think the study's flawed. All right. So I made a YouTube video about it. 
which now has more views than the plenary session of the actual thing. So, all right, so they're on the ropes. All right, so I'm gonna conclude because I'm standing between you and lunch. But what's my point here? We do great and crazy things. Yes, we do great things. And the greatest thing we do in oncology is we care for the patient. I think we forget, it's not the drugs, it's not the radiation, it's not the surgery. We care for the patient. We're the person the patient talks to. We're the person the patient asks you questions about the estranged brother, whether or not they should reach out to them, or their son, or their daughter. That's the most important thing we do. And all the people on the care team, maybe even the nurses, do the most of it. That's the most important thing. We do give good drugs, life-saving drugs. There's so many drugs I use today that I'm grateful for. I didn't have when I started my career 10 years ago in oncology. But we do a lot of bad things too. We do research to help ourselves. It doesn't help anybody else. Nobody believes it's true. They write paragraphs of limitations. They're angry that Dr. Prasad is going to call their study. We also do trials where we would not let our father go on that control arm. I think that's so bad. You can never enroll somebody in a study if you wouldn't let your mother or father be on the control arm. And the truth of some of these studies is not hidden. It's right there under that figure. You just never look there because nobody ever taught us because we're not taught to read studies critically. We're just taught the same old things that I hear all the time when I go to conferences. All right, so low credibility research, bad design issues, many forget. Okay, if you like this talk, you can go check out my YouTube channel. There are many, many talks on all your favorite cancer drugs. If you have a suggestion, you can email me. Um, we, have a, we have a news magazine. It's called Sensible Medicine. You might like it. We have stories on all sorts of issues. We just had a story about Peter Atiyah's book on how to live forever. Answer coffee, of course, coffee. Um, I run a little, I run a substack called the Drug Development Letter. It's just about drug development. If you're in drug development, you want to subscribe to the Drug Development Letter because it's just about really boring things like dosing and non-inferiority margins and all those kinds of technical things. And uh, I host my own substack on some other things, whatever thoughts I have in the moment. Plenary Session, the podcast in oncology, the first podcast, I think, in oncology, and still the most popular. All right. And uh, the book Malignant, I think, if anyone's interested in really getting into these things. All right, thank you all for having me. It's always a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Yes, please. Yeah, I'm curious. Yeah, yeah, sure, please. I'm curious. This is really intriguing for sure, and I think that you kind of tapped into all kinds of things that most of us, many, are not actually reading in or even know what to look for in this process. So um, one thing I've kind of really loved about this conference is kind of, so what now? So now that we have this information, what, what does that mean for us in our day-to-day -day work and activity? It's a great question. What now? Okay, I'd say uh, there's three chapters at the end of this book, and they're called one, what can patients do, what can doctors do, and then what can the system do? So what can patients do? I think the answer is there's certain questions that I give that you can ask the doctor when you're rolling in a clinical trial. And I think one question is like, if I weren't in this study, what's the best available standard of care? They'll say cabazitaxel, and then they'll say, well, why isn't that an option if I'm in this study? So I mean, you know, so those kinds of questions that'll help the patient. The chapter on what can the doctors do has a lot of things about like, I think, you know, when I started in oncology, well, let me put it this way. If you are a practicing hemonc doctor, I think you have to always try to be learning the reality of what's going on. And if you're just hearing the reality from the conferences, you don't know the reality. The conferences are carefully curated. The number one sponsor of many of these conferences is the person who's selling the entity. I mean, I think it's very hard to get independent critical thinking on this. So I think we have even more duty on us to try to seek that out. 
And if you're in training, I have a lot of suggestions for what you can do to try to become better at reading articles and that kind of thing. Um, and to listen to like critical podcasts and listen to the people who you may not always agree with. Um, and then the third is what can the system do? And that's the biggest failure in my opinion because the purpose of the FDA and the CMS is to do what's in the public good. Uh, but we had a prior commissioner, Scott Gottlieb, who said, quote, something, uh, I won't say quote, he said something to the effect of, we forget that one of the important constituencies of the FDA is the company. I said, oh no, it's not. It's the people of the society. And now Scott Gottlieb's on the board of directors of Pfizer. So, I mean, I mean, but that's the reality. So much revolving door politics, so much what I think is naked corruption. And so if I were to fix the system, I would overhaul FDA, I would change all the, system, all the rules, and I would change payment reimbursement, and I have lots of specifics on like, what I would do. But I think that's the solution. So thank you for that question. Yeah. One more. One more. Yes. All these papers are peer reviewed. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's a problem. Yeah, I mean, I guess I'd say peer review pays you nothing. Every day I get seven to review. You know, they ask me to do seven, so we should maybe pay them. Two, I just don't think we don't, we just don't teach anybody these things. Like, you know, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's good to, like, try to, it's good for fellows to learn, you know, all those cell pathways that I don't remember anymore. But it would be great for them to learn how to read papers. And I'm in the medical school. I teach in the first year medical school. They have, you know, I, I try to bring my energy to epidemiology, but their heart is in biochemistry, which I think is much less relevant for a doctor than epidemiology, which I think is much more. So I think I would revamp medical education too. But I mean, I think that goes to the part of peer review. Should all these papers have like somebody like you that can like critically look and yes. pull apart? And yes, I think so, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like it. Thank you. Good point. Enjoy lunch. Thank you.